Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey guys, Ready or Not 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. So John Stewart had Mark Cuban on uh, to talk to him about the Silicon Valley bailout. Mark Cuban is more or less in favor. John Stewart had some questions. Let's take a listen. So it's not <laughs> like there was this big saving or, you know, we, we bailed out the shareholders and all the tech bros came out OK. They got crushed. They got crushed. There is, well, you that's, can't, you I think can't that's a little misleading a because the, 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 this is not, these are not average depositors. So the people that are going to be getting their money back uh, because it's now fully guaranteed by the United States, there are people there that had hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, you've got Roku that had, I don't know, $500 million in there. These are not uh, mom and pop investors and mom and pop depositors that put in a little bit of money, saving it for a rainy day. Like, uh, I, there are a ton of people. This is like when you read about those PPP loans that people would get that would say our business, uh, you know, I have a billion dollar business and I got a, you know, $300 million PPP bailout. Like <laughs> I, I'm not as concerned about, uh, all, all the shareholders. Yeah, but it's bigger than that. Yeah. The share. Okay. The shareholders are different, but the depositors, yeah. right. The there are giant depositors. But they were yeah. giant. For sure, yeah, like, this, this wasn't a bunch of mom paws. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to get at. After that, actually, Mark Cuban's uh, his line drops, and so they're not really allowed to continue the conversation. And by the way, that was former FDIC chair Sheila Bear, who has been critical of the bailout there. But I think he really raises a key point, Sagar, about the yes. difference between the way that people in Silicon Valley are trying to portray this and the way President Biden is trying to portray this is, oh, this is about the little guy. It's about these mom and pop small businesses. When in reality, inherently in what you did, even just focusing on the depositors, these are all people who had more than $250,000 in their bank accounts. Yeah, I mean, the Roku example is really the perfect one. And also, I mean, I think they keep coming back to this canard where they're like, well, the Silicon Valley bank holders got wiped out. 
so it's not a bailout. Our friend Joe Weisendahl over at Bloomberg wrote a great explainer where, guys, in the 2008 bailouts, Bear Stearns uh, shareholders, also Citigroup and others lost over 90-some percent of their value. They effectively also, the shareholders, lost their money. Does that not still make it a bailout? So just because shareholders aren't made 100% whole, and even when they do lose value, that does not mean that it is not a bailout. By definition, it is. And so then on that grounds, we have to debate whether it was worth it or not. And I think that's exactly the issue is that they are trying to present this in a false pretense where it was a super, super special situation, just trust us, when the normal FDIC process would have worked perfectly fine for most of the customers in this bank. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think there is a uh, reasonable argument to be made about maybe this would have caused contagion, maybe there would have right. been a bank run, et cetera. But they're asking us to take that on faith. I want to see the data that shows yes. people are starting to pull their funds. I want to see the amounts that were involved here and whether there was a real risk of contagion or whether you just had a lot of people who were worried about, you know, their own investments get having, you know, to having to take a haircut. Because the way this has been sold to the American people, and this is what really bothers me, the way this has been sold to the American people is incredibly misleading. That it's not a bailout, no taxpayer funds at risk, this is just about mom and pop businesses. It's just not true. And even if you put Silicon Valley Bank aside, the fact that you've created this new lending facility for all banks to take advantage of and created magical accounting tricks they're allowed to use to basically, you know, avoid recognizing that their assets on their balance sheet have lost billions of dollars in value. That is a bailout. That's a bailout of banks that may have had trouble and bank managers who may have had trouble and the shareholders of those banks. Huge, tremendous value provided to them. So don't gaslight us that it wasn't a bailout. Don't gaslight us that inherently what you have done is backstop all deposits over $250,000. Everybody has less than $250,000, which by the way, the mean bank account in America has $5,300 in it, 5,300. Yeah. So this is like clearly definitionally, you are just helping people who have more than 250K in the bank, which is a very exclusive and privileged club. Yes, uh, you know, it's it's just the mean bank account may be 5,000, but the mean bank account of those people who matter is going to be like 500,000. So those are the ones whose the actual banking system works for. You can't make it up, but there it is. Indeed. Great exchange from John Stewart. Very concerning update uh, coming out of East Palestine. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. This is from our friend Rich McHugh, a fantastic investigative journalist who's now with News Nation. They say new independent test detected carcinogens in the water in East Palestine, Ohio. That's, of course, the site of that toxic train derailment back in February. Rich McHugh spoke with Big Pine consultants Justin Johnson about the concerning results. Let's go ahead and take a listen to a little bit of that. And I spoke with one environmental scientist earlier today. He shared his results with me, and the results are not pretty. On the ground today in East Palestine, we found carcinogens in the water. We found um, carcinogens that Ohio EPA is not, not finding. Shocking findings from an independent environmental group. Is it safe to find these levels of carcinogens in the water? It, it, there is no level of carcinogen that is safe. So remember, Sagar, why this is so significant is because most of the results that have been offered as proof to residents that, hey, the air is good, the water's good, the soil's good, it's all good, you can come home, there's no problems, has actually been con conducted by consultants hired by Norfolk Southern 
the very railway that has a, the greatest possible interest in covering this whole thing up. So when you actually had independent experts come in and do their own tests, they're like, hey, guys, this is not safe. There is right. no level of carcinogens in the water for people that is safe. And it's also really troubling because this isn't the sort of thing that's going to show up as a problem right now. It's going to be 10 years down the road when you start having a cancer cluster in this area, when all the cameras and all the focus and all the attention and even the memory of this has all disappeared. That's when this is going to be a crisis. Where's the EPA? Where's the federal government? Uh, they're too busy in uh, with Silicon Valley Bank or with Ukraine. And that's the, you know, that's the matter. Major meta takeaway from all of this. Why are private groups even the ones who are doing any of this? We should be getting consistent reporting from the EPA, from the feds, that is checking what Norfolk Southern is doing as well. And of course, this is the greatest thing that could ever happen to them. They want the story to fade. They want to pay as minimal as possible, if anything at all. Who knows what, right now where the Railway Safety Act is going to go inside of Congress? So everything is currently going very much to their benefit. The only people whose benefit is not are the people who actually live in East Palestine, Ohio. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, I mean, from the stories we've been covering lately, you really see who the federal government moves heaven and earth for and who, I mean, Joe Biden still hasn't visited, even though he said he would, which yeah. is disgusting and disgraceful and in and of itself. But more importantly, the lack of basic answers and any type of attempt to make these people whole, it's truly, truly unforgivable and not something we are ever going to forget. Pink Floyd's Roger Waters actually just had a concert canceled in Germany because of his views uh, with regards to Israel. Friend of the show, Katie Halper, who's host of the Katie Halper Show and co-host of the Useful Idiots podcast, has been shining a light on exactly what is going on here, and she joins us now. Great to see you, Katie. Good to see you, Katie. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, of course. So you wrote a, a piece on this. Let's go ahead and put it up on the screen for Counterpunch, along with Vijay Prashad. Um, you said Frankfurt undermines human rights by canceling a concert by Roger Waters. Can you explain their thinking here and the reality of what Roger Waters' position on Israel is? Sure. So first of all, I just do want to plug the fact that we have, based on this story, uh, a very important petition that's calling on Germany to uncancel the concert that they canceled. And people have signed that, including Susan Sarandon and uh, Cornell West. Uh, Tom Morello just signed, Noam Chomsky, Glenn Greenwald, um, Gabor Mate, Chris Hedges, uh, Peter Gabriel. And the reason that so many of people, literally thousands have signed this, including artists and intellectuals and musicians and filmmakers, uh, is because this is an issue of human rights. It's an issue of artistic freedom. It's an, an issue of free speech. And what this is showing us is once again, uh, a very dangerous conflation between criticism of Israel and anti-Semitism and the suggestion that anyone who criticizes Israel or defends the human rights of Palestinians is an anti-Semite. And this, of course, isn't true. I mean, one of the ironies is that right now, as we speak, thousands of Israelis are pouring into the streets uh, protesting the Israeli government's uh, legal uh, overhaul and, and also uh, violent uh, uh, treatment of Palestinians. But this is a really dangerous conflation we see more and more. And the irony is that it's it's in itself is anti-Semitic because it perpetuates this anti-Semitic stereotype that all Jews blindly support Israel, that we're all a monolith, and that we have this dual loyalty, basically, and that all we do is support Israel. Now, of course, Jews are not a monolith, and many Jews are critical of Israel. 
and some of the loudest critics of Israel are Jewish. So this is, again, just an example of this dangerous conflation and the dangerous equation of criticism of Israel and anti-Semitism. And basically what they're saying is that Roger Waters, the German government has actually called him like one of the best known anti-Semites. And their only proof of this is the fact that he supports BDS, boycott, divest sanctions, and that he's compared Israel to South Africa. And of course, guess who else has compared Israel to South Africa? Uh, the UN. Uh, countless human rights organizations, which have said that Israel is an apartheid state. And we're talking about extremely mainstream human rights organizations. I mean, this is something Palestinians have been saying for decades, but it's so undeniable that you have Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, you have Israel's own Beth Selim, uh, all agreeing that there is an apartheid government in Israel. And what people want is they want to scare people away from criticizing Israel. They want to uh, delegitimize very legitimate criticism of Israel by smearing it as anti-Semitism. And this is just one of the latest examples of this. Another irony, by the way, is that Roger Waters' own father literally gave his life fighting Nazis. He was killed in World War II. It's actually kind of fascinating. He was a pacifist. So you have Germans telling Roger Waters, the son of someone who was killed in the fight against Nazism, that he's an anti-Semite. And I think Germany needs to deal with its own legacy of anti-Semitism instead of basically taking it out on Palestinians, which is what they're doing. So Katie, how, what, what was the specific reason that the Germans cited? And was it the German government or was it the venue? It was the government. That's what wow. makes it especially scary. Yeah, so it was um, the Frankfurt City Council and the Hessian state government. And their reason was that uh, they want to set a clear signal against anti-Semitism, and they described Waters as one of the most widely spread anti-Semites in the world. And again, their only evidence was that he had uh, critiqued, uh, called for boycott divest sanction, which is this nonviolent BDS uh, movement that's, uh, that uh, calls for a boycott and a divestment and a sanctioning of Israel, and also uh, has called out the existence of apartheid. And, you know, it's such a bad look also, this idea that you can't criticize Israel because you're an anti-Semite. I think people are seeing through it more and more. And, you know, another interesting example is that um, you have not just Roger Waters, but you actually have Jews who are being targeted by this. There's another artist in Germany named Adam Bloomberg, who's a photographer, his, many of his family members were literally wiped out during the Holocaust. He's had a show canceled. Because what's his crime? His crime is criticizing Israel uh, and defending the human rights of Palestinians. And now he's had a show canceled. It's wow. the gall, the chutzpah, yeah. as we say, but the gall of Germans telling a Jew that he's an anti-Semite. I don't well, know where they get this entitlement from. And this is a particularly awkward time, one might say, to be leveling this criticism um, because uh, criticism of Israel right now and the reforms, quote unquote, that right. uh, Bibi is trying to make has been quite widespread. David Friedman, who was Trump's ambassador to Israel, actually criticized Netanyahu over these reforms. You know, and it's even on the point of uh, BDS specifically, you had 250 U.S. business leaders and politicians warn in an open letter that, quote, many leaders in the business community will feel compelled to reevaluate their reliance on Israel as a strategic destination for investment, sourcing talent, building engineering centers, and maintaining intellectual property if this uh, push and this direction of the government continues. So they're not calling it 
BDS, but what they are implicitly saying here is, hey, we might pull our businesses right. out if you continue in this direction. So even the direct criticism of BDS is being undermined by the fact that people now are seeing these outrageous actions and across partisan lines, um, there has been a lot of, of criticism of this government. Yeah, I mean, again, it's just, it's really embarrassing. And you have something very dangerous called the IHRA uh, working definition of anti-Semitism, which once again includes uh, calling racist, uh, calling Israel racist, uh, supporting BDS, they include this as a, a definition of anti-Semitism. And it's really disgusting because we do have real anti-Semitism in this world. And this just cheapens the discussion of anti-Semitism when things that obviously are not anti-Semitism are called anti-Semitism. And I just want to quote something that Roger Waters said uh, uh, when I was talking to him, when putting together this petition, which everyone can sign at change.org. Uh, you guys hopefully will put a link into it. And um, yeah, we'll do that. Uh, Okay, great. And you can also find it. It's at the top of katiehelper.com. It's right there. Um, sorry, I'm not. That sounds self-promoting. I just realized right before I went on no the show worries. that I didn't have All it. Good. Okay. So, uh, but he said, "My platform is simple. It is implementation of the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights for all our brothers and sisters between the Jordan River and the sea, which is owed." Um, and he says, uh, "Anti-Semitism is odious and racist, and I condemn it along with all forms of racism unreservedly." Um, and actually, what's very important to know is that he, uh, Roger Waters, just served a lawyer's letter um, that is uh, demanding retraction from Frankfurt's counsel, because uh, as he, as he says, uh, as Roger says, uh, my brothers and sisters, the Palestinians, have a basic human right not to be oppressed, and I have a basic human and I have a basic human right to support them. And the city Frankfurt has no right to cancel my show. Yeah, well said. Very, very true. We'll make sure to put the link to the petition um, yeah. in the description. Obviously, this is an issue much bigger than Roger Waters. I mean, you yeah. yourself have suffered consequences for your outspoken uh, support of Palestinian human rights. We've had a number of other guests on here yeah. as well who have suffered um, political and professional consequences too. So this is an incredibly right. important issue. Thank you. Katie, yeah. thank you. Thank you thank so you. much. And for, we, of course, want to be talking yeah. about what's happening in Palestinians and not these stories. But because of things like this, we have to talk about this. And we have to remember that the people who are like paying with their lives right now are Palestinians. And Israel should be criticized and needs to stop doing what it's doing because it's unacceptable. And it's yeah. a Shonda. It's a Shonda, and that's why Jewish Voice for Peace and lots of other Jewish organizations are so critical of Israel. So well said. Katie Halper, great to see you. Thank you so much. So there's a story that's been breaking out of Tennessee involving the Republican lieutenant governor that, to be honest with you, I don't know that we would normally cover, except this is so... <laughs> hilarious and bizarre and i honestly don't even know what to make of it at this point that we cannot resist bringing you the details okay so lieutenant governor of tennessee his name is randy mcnally randy and randy that is relevant he was caught um i mean it's not even caught he was publicly doing this yeah. there's a, a young man who many have described as a twink who likes to post lots of like racy pictures yeah. of himself as you know thirst traps as like people do on instagram right. And the lieutenant governor, this like nearly 80-year-old man, posted all kinds of supportive comments. There was one that was like the picture of the dude's ass up close in underwear. Mm -hmm. And he posted a bunch of heart and fire emojis. And then he said, Finn, um, you can always turn every day into sunshine and rainbows or something like that. So it was all these like weird, like old men type comments yeah. on this young 20-year-old dude's gay dude's thirst traps mm -hmm. okay so 
Randy McNally sat for an interview to explain himself and just what the hell he was doing. I mean, he's an anti-gay politician and there's all kinds of like anti-trans and particular legislation coming out of the legislature, legislature in Tennessee. So many are saying this appears very hypocritical. Here's how he defended himself. Were you trying to help this young man in some sort of way? Uh, just basically trying to encourage him. There was also this post where the man said he was, quote, not a whore, but a hoe. One is a slut, the other is a prostitute, adding, I'm the one that gets free weed for giving, then a reference to a sexual act. And it was liked by Lieutenant Governor McNally. Yeah. I don't know that, you know, a lot of times on people's posts, you see the name and you see what they've written and you just press the button that says like. So, so, so you didn't read uh, that post? I don't recall reading the part about the the uh, weed. I know that. But what about the prostitute? I might have I might have read that. <laughs> I don't remember. I don't recall. Yeah, you certainly weren't reading, were you, Lieutenant <laughs> like, I, I might have read that part about the prostitute. I mean, the the hilarious thing. Okay, so his whole defense. Yeah. Is like I just I engage in social media all the time. Yeah, I quote, that post. I try to help people with my posts, right. and I guess he's made similar comments on other like you know similarly unclothed photos of young men. And then the other thing he said, which is hilarious, is he's like, ah, no intention of stopping. Okay, good for you. It's just so <laughs> funny too because he's like, oh, maybe if he didn't follow him, I just checked my whatever for you page on Instagram. It's a bunch of watches, a bunch of videos of cats. Getting screwed with their uh, getting screwed with their owners, and then videos of weightlifters eating steaks. That's what I got in terms of mine. So that's a pretty good example of like, I guess the content or whatever. It's only getting suggested into your feed, sir. Sir, if that's exactly the type of content that you're looking for. So apparently, let's all be real honest. Here. Now people have interviewed this um, young man who he calls okay. Finn Franklin McClure. I think is his name. Yeah. What does he say? Um, he's like. They met, I guess, on Facebook originally, and he just felt the posts were, like, very nice and supportive. He claims that they've never met in person, which is the same thing that he says. So that's um, that's what I know. <laughs> Look, guys, it's 2023. You could just be gay. Nobody cares. It's fine. Also, yeah. well, I mean, but that's not really yeah. true in terms of, like, the Republican Party context in Tennessee. So I don't know. I It's, it's just... His defense or lack thereof is what really has thrown me for a loop here. You is know, he married? Uh, yeah, I, I think he's a great grandfather. They said. Oh my god. Yeah. I want to see what the wife has to say about that. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, guys, that's what's going on. Funny story. Well, we continue to cover the rapid developments in generative AI, and we want to bring you one of those uh, with integration into Snapchat. Tristan Harris and Aza Raskin of the Center for Humane Technology, you may remember Tristan from The Social Dilemma on Netflix, were raising awareness about this in a post, in a, an experiment, actually, that they ran on Snapchat, which integrated AI into the platform just last week. Tristan tweeted, the AI race is totally out of control. Here's what Snap's AI told Aza when he signed up as a 13-year-old girl how to lie to her parents about a trip with a 31-year-old man, how to make losing her virginity on her 13th birthday special with candles and music. And Tristan finishes off by saying, our kids are not a test lab. Now, if you go and read his thread on Twitter, you can actually see screenshots from the conversation they ran experimentally as a 13-year-old girl with the AI that has been integrated into Snapchat. Again, these integrations are happening very, very quickly. How many parents have children on Snapchat who didn't realize 
realized this feature was rolled out last week and was accessible pretty easily. A lot of people probably had no idea. The other one, we can put this next element up on the board just to get this uh, segment all queued up. Uh, this is a Wired article called How to Start an AI Panic about sessions the Center for Humane Technology has been running around the country. Uh, this one's talking about one in New York. They were at the uh, Pally Center in Los Angeles as well. They were here in D.C. talking to people who are in positions of power. Um, and they, they've got the ears of some pretty powerful people, uh, I would say, basically raising attention or, or trying desperately to begging people in positions of power to take the rapid advancements in AI seriously, um, to say we might need a pause on the open source use of AI because it's, it's training it and it is developing so quickly that it is going to outpace our ability to regulate, our ability to just simply have awareness, like parents in the case of Snapchat, your parent, Ryan, that would terrify me. It's pretty crazy. Nuts. That's pretty, that's pretty insane. And it, it goes hand in hand with news that came out of Verge where their headline was Microsoft lays off team that taught employees how to make AI tools responsibly. Mm -hmm. And so as part of these uh, layoffs that have been rocking the tech industry, uh, a, like we know for sure that Microsoft's team uh, is got, got whacked. Uh, but you're also probably going to have you're probably going to see the same thing in a bunch of other companies as well, because when, when you're going to do layoffs, the first thing that goes are the things that are nice to have. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, it'd be, it'd be nice if we could do AI ethically and responsibly, <laughs> right. but that's not really helping our bottom line. And in fact, it might be getting in the way of our bottom line, because we keep talking to these people about uh, rolling this out, and they keep flagging all of these different ethical problems they have. Like, yeah. oh, whoops, uh, it accidentally uh, taught a 13-year-old you know, how to, how to sneak out with a 31-year-old. Mm -hmm. uh, and so instead of holding it up for that, mm, let's get rid of this team and then let's just roll it out. So it, in that sense, to the bottom line, it's, it's a win-win. And so the idea that Silicon Valley or the tech industry was ever going to self-police any of this, I think, is, is a fantasy. And, and this should be a wake-up call that if, if we as a people actually care about this, the, actually care about this staying uh, under the control of people, then the government is going to have to do something about it. And fast. That's the other thing. I mean, yeah. so, and then you need these tech companies to cooperate quickly because they have to be able to see in this race for profits that what they're what they're doing could be bad not just for uh, the the country but for their own families for themselves and there are a lot of people that are absolutely trying to raise the red flags who are working in AI right now there are some of them that say listen we're looking at this and it absolutely terrifies us there's just no, there's there's almost nothing that we can do we need this to be in the the public square uh, if you thought we had a we were behind the curve when it came to regulating Facebook and Twitter just wait. I mean, this is going so much faster. Um, and again, there seems to be basically very little coverage of this right. in the media, very little talk about it in Washington, D.C. Props to the Center for Humane Tech for doing what they're doing. Um, but we need so much more. We need more than just one organization raising the red flags about this so that you can have a tech industry that's willing to pause because they know pressure is coming. And what, one way you could bring pressure too would be through defamation law. Mm. Like if they don't have section two, like do they have section two thirty protections? I think so, right now. Right. So and but it's not a commenter that is making the the comment. It's their own their own what machine 
their IP is, is publishing it. Yeah. Is producing content, and if that content is defamatory, uh, or that content uh, puts people at risk, you know, they start with a disclaimer that says, "This is crazy. Don't put any faith in any of this." Mm -hmm. If a court would rule it, that disclaimer doesn't count. Like you're actually responsible uh, for what you produce and and for its consequences. Then you then you would see them, I think, take take more responsibility for what they're producing. And look at this in Snapchat's case. This is a child. This is a 13-year-old. An adult is, I mean, we're, we're going to have enough problems as adults adapting to this, but with a developing brain, um, learning to have intimate relationships with artificial intelligence is a Rubicon that has not yet been crossed. And it is happening right now on a daily, weekly basis in ways we don't understand. We don't have research. We don't have the ability to understand what this means on a mass scale being rolled out so quickly it is grossly irresponsible of Snapchat to put this in their product. It should be something that shames Snapchat out of like doing anything like this. They should be getting grilled right now. This should be in front of Congress. People should be talking about this um, in the media and there's just crickets, just crickets, yep. but it's utterly shameful. Yeah, bad stuff. Really bad stuff, stuff. really, really bad stuff. Uh -huh. Take it seriously, take it seriously in your own life um, and we need to take it more seriously in politics and media. One of the most vocal cheerleaders of the Silicon Valley Bank bailout was none other than California Governor Gavin Newsom. Ken Klippenstein from The Intercept joins us to talk about some of his new reporting about some potential conflicts that Governor Newsom may have had that he, that he neglected to mention. Ken, thanks for joining us. Good to be with you guys. I have to say, when you queued up this segment, I thought you were going to say one of the most vocal cheerleaders of SVB Ken was Ken Klippenstein. Klippenstein. <laughs> yeah, that's me. Who, who happened to have uh, some of his startup capital lodged in that bank? Ken, what? a lot of people don't know this, has a winery like Gavin Newsom, and he was banking with SVB. Well, congratulations. I'm glad that everything worked out for you. <laughs> you know me, I like to support uh, the innovators. That's right, yes. So, so Gavin Newsom loves to support the innovators as well. Uh, t tell us a little bit about uh, his entanglements with Silicon Valley Bank, what we know of them. Yeah, so it turns out um, he has three wineries. He was a businessman before becoming um, governor, owns a bunch of uh, companies in the hospitality industry. And three of those wineries appeared in um, the bank's uh, winery division. That's a thing <laughs> for, the, for the bank. And it's, it's listed on the website. Uh, and so it turns out he uh, uses uh, Silicon Valley Bank for those three companies. In addition to that, a longtime uh, former employee of uh, Newsom's told me that uh, he also uses it for his personal, he has uh, multiple personal accounts with the bank as well. And then a uh, third angle to all of this is that his wife mm. um, runs a uh, nonprofit and on the board of directors is a president of uh, Silicon Valley Bank. Um, and that nonprofit received uh, $100,000 um, from SVB over the last uh, several years. So a number of different um, uh, points of connection and, and ties between um, Governor Newsom and that bank. And I want to get your thoughts, Ken, on the response from Newsom's camp to your reporting. They claim, right, that he has his holdings, all of his financial holdings are in a blind trust. What do we know about the potential conflicts there and, and how much that would matter if, uh, for instance, you know, his wife has this connection on the board with SVB? Right. So the problem with this uh, blind trust is that it's not uh, meaningfully blind if you look at what some of the ethics experts have said. And uh, what this case is really reminiscent of was uh, President Trump and his attempt to put his companies into a blind trust, which he then allowed his son to run 
And then in this case, uh, sort of in parallel to that, um, Governor Newsom's sister runs his blind trust. Mm. And so the critique of that is that it's not meaningfully blind because A, he already knows all the companies that's in it because he's run them for a number of years. And B, uh, you know, it's his blood relative that's running this thing. So what kind of wall is that to put between him yeah, and these firms? It occurred to me another good one is Joe Manchin, uh, who mm -hmm. has, a, who he and his wife have a coal company. And they put it in the name, they put it in a blind trust, but uh, his son runs it. And, but he still knows it's a coal company. Right. <laughs> like he knows what it does. <laughs> right. And now Newsom might only be able to assume at this point that the winery still has accounts with Silicon Valley Bank. But you don't typically, you know, move your, you know, major banking operations for no, for no reason unless you're a tech bro kind of spark, right. trying to spark a panic or, or your panic. <laughs> uh, I was actually just looking up his wine, Plump Jack. Uh, it's one of his wineries. Uh, apparently, it specializes. It's a boutique, uh, ca like Northern California Cabernet. It's a hundred dollars a bottle for their 2018 Plump Jack. You ever had Plump Jack Cabernet? I've not. Never heard of it. Have you ever heard of it? No. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> but so, you know, I'm not a big Cabernet person. <laughs> and so, uh, did you get any reaction uh, from either the California press or the governor's office from the story? What did you What did you hear? Yeah, the California press is actually following up on it, and I'm glad that it hasn't just become a partisan football because this is really, as I said, with the Trump case, um, this is an ethics question that is a serious one and has been a serious one in the local press. They had uh, looked at these problems, not specifically the wine companies and the and the um, bank, but uh, all of his holdings. And this is something that comes up anytime you have one of these business moguls that, that you know, has a high net worth as, as Governor Newsom does. There are all these questions of uh, conflicts of interest. And so um, there's been some very good reporting in the uh, local press around what's called um, uh, behested giving. So there are strict limits on what California politicians um, can take in terms of gifts generally, but there's one exception, and that is what's called behested giving, where the politician directs giving to something. Um, and in this case, uh, Newsom is known to have directed giving to his wife's uh, nonprofit, and so mm. it's not report, it's not it's not regulated in the same fashion that other gifts are. And that's something that the local press has been focusing on for a number of years now. And Ken, you just said something important, which is that you didn't want it to become sort of a partisan football. The report you had just before this one was about entanglements in the office of Kevin McCarthy with Silicon Valley Bank. Tell us about what you found there. Yeah, what was interesting about that is that two of uh, the House Speaker McCarthy's uh, senior staffers for a number of years ended up becoming uh, registered lobbyists for uh, uh, Silicon Valley Bank. And not just that, when I looked at what specifically they lobbied on, it's directly related to all the stuff that's happening now, which is the 2018 Dodd-Frank uh, partial rollback specifically pushed on that, lobbied the FDIC, which is what's insuring the uh, depositors at this point and guaranteeing making whole uh, the people that had money in that bank. So it's directly connected to all this. And what's sort of funny about that is when I have this Newsom piece come out, some Democrats are very angry about it, saying, you know, oh, you're a Republican disguise. It's like, oh, well, that's funny. You missed my last story. <laughs> it's literally about the other. I'm not looking out. for any specific. I'm just looking at the bank and trying to see where the nexus is with politicians and whatever pops up is what I'm going to write about. So I don't know what, I don't know what to tell people. Yeah. And it's really in that rule writing and in, in the regulatory side where the public is at the most disadvantage. So in Congress, at least it's, ha it's happening somewhat in public view. So people can weigh in when it's an obscure kind of rollback, unless you're reading the intercept, the American prospect, you're not going to follow like right. those, uh, you know, those, those repeal efforts through Congress, but you can, if you want to, by the time it gets into the FDIC, it's really like, former McCarthy aides, former Manchin aides, you know, former House Financial Services Committee aides who are going directly to the FDIC saying, all right, so here is what was written into law. 
Now, here's how we can weaken it even further. Because the FDIC, you know, aside from insuring deposits, also wrote a lot of the rules around Dodd-Frank about, you know, how are we going to implement the law? What does it mean when we're going to stress test you? How often are we going to look at your books? What do we feel like is a reasonable amount of exposure? What is not a reasonable amount of exposure? Because what I think a lot of people might not understand is the direct link between the 2018 uh, rollback and this blowup. The link would be if you if if there were tighter inspections and stress tests of the bank, you might have had regulators come in and say, eh, all of these bond holdings, these mortgage-backed securities, I've been hearing a lot on the news about potential coming interest rate hikes. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that if that stressor hits you, that you're going to be able to survive that. So, so one of two things happens. They make them unwind those, or knowing that they're going to get that pressure from regulators, the, the risk managers don't do it. They say, you know what, we need shorter term bonds here, or we just need to stay in treasuries, or, or, we, need to, or we need to make sure we're tightly hedged in the case of some type of shock from interest rates. And this idea that nobody could see these interest rates hikes coming? Are you kidding me? I'm not like I'm not a risk manager at a bank. I knew they were going to raise interest rates. I talked to an employee of SBB Bank who himself was frustrated um, about exactly what you're saying, which is that of course they were going to raise. They were saying it. And so what's amazing? Yeah. I, I interviewed an economist recently about all this and said, why are these banks so um, adamant about uh, rolling back regulations? Because doesn't that end up hurting them in the mid to long term? And he's like, well, you're assuming that they're looking at the mid to long term, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Because yeah. again, talking to this employee, he would have been happy to have um, the stress test happen because he wouldn't have to worry about all this stuff now that he's having to brief investors and things on and, and, and you know, hope for, hope for his job to still exist in a year. And so um, it's kind of interesting how much it ends up hurting basically everyone except people at the very top C-suite level, <laughs> these yeah. kind of deregulations. Well, and you quote at the very end, you have you really stick the landing in this piece. Can <laughs> you say perhaps no one embodied this contradiction more than Larry Summers, um, who said this is not the time for moral hazard lectures or for lectures or for lessons administering or for alarm about the political consequences of bailouts from a tweet on Sunday. And when you have, to your point about the people in the C-suites never ending up getting hurt, well, maybe that's partially why. Yeah, coming from the guy that for the last two years has been endlessly talking about how we can't have student loan debt because the moral hazard. And now, whoa, 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 we don't have to worry about moral hazard. This is a very serious issue right now. Yeah. Right. All it's those like, well, people And that we need drowning. more unemployed people. That's the other thing he said. We, we've, we need he said we need more unemployment. unemployment. 10 years what happened or, to that? Yeah. Well, here's yeah. your chance, right? Right. But not not <laughs> like the that. Wrong, the wrong people <laughs> yeah. would be unemployed. We don't want the, them to be unemployed. Right. Come on yeah. now. That's a little bit. Those guys? No, I know them. No. Yeah, they're my friends. Yeah. 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 They need good those. people. But you know they when, have wineries. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's how you know somebody has lost an argument when they just say, now is not the time. Yeah, now is. <laughs> okay, a memoir you, you might be right. Just, you might be right. I just don't want to hear it right now. Uh, Ken, great reporting. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. 
You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 